What's a military to do? Our war in Afghanistan is coming to an end. What the heck? We're not at war with China. I'm Bert Cohen, and with your help, we are keeping democracy alive. What's going on? He's not breathing. Can you get a pulse? Barely. Call a code. Get Nambia back from the nurse's station. Heart's still working, means synapses are still firing. You just need to get a message through. What we've really seen is a financial sector that's uh, gotten out of hand. Much too much of a role in this country. And without them knowing what it was doing. There's not going to be a war by Russia to conquer the United States. There's not going to be a war by China to conquer the United States. No country is going to conquer the United States. The United States is destroying itself because of the size of its military. So yes, there's a huge gap between public opinion and public policy. And uh, that people don't feel that they can do very much. I speak tonight for the... Dignity of man. In a song by XTC, the lyrics include these words, Generals and majors always seem so unhappy unless they got a war. The key word here is always. The U.S. is finally getting out of what was Russia's Vietnam in Afghanistan, and our old Cold War adversary Russia basically owned the previous president, so so much for that uh, military enemy. And now there's a new target. China. Certainly, China's government is not one Americans could cozy up to with their repression in Hong Kong and of the Uyghurs. They're certainly a big economic competitor. No question about that. As time goes on in this new administration, we see increasingly heated rhetoric from what Eisenhower recognized as America's powerful military-industrial complex. The increasing rhetoric is angry toward China. Oh, goody, more money for the Pentagon. But could this confrontation build to a hot war, with each side having a great many nuclear weapons? They're not nice guys, but is there some other way of dealing with China? Our guest today, Lawrence Whitner, asks in an article, Will U.S.-China relations be defined by militaristic competition or climate cooperation? Is a war footing the only path forward? Is it just the same old unrealistic peace people objecting to militarization? Is there a realistic alternative possible? Lawrence Whitner, thanks so much for being with us on Keeping Democracy Alive. Uh, thanks very much, Bert. Lawrence Whitner has a PhD in history from Columbia University, professor emeritus of history at the State University of New York at Albany, where he taught courses for decades on the history of U.S. foreign policy and international history. Before that, he taught at Vassar College and under the Fulbright program at Japanese universities. He's written hundreds of articles as well as numerous books, including Rebels Against War, American Intervention in Greece, and Confronting the Bomb. Currently, he serves on the National Board of Citizens for Global Solutions as a board member of the Peace Action Fund of New York State and on the steering committee of the Committee for a Sane U.S.-China Policy. Well, again, thanks for being with us. And when I was growing up in the 50s, there was a big red scare, and we heard about Red China. It was painted, as you can imagine, we had supported nationalist China before the 1949 victory of Chairman Mao. And then in Washington started a new game of who lost China? Who lost China as if it was ours to lose in the first place? Tell us, please, uh, Lawrence, about the uh, narrative of that and, and what kind of baseline that set for future relations with China. 
Well, um, uh, the United States, of, of course, in, in, in terms of politics, was uh, caught up with the uh, Republican uh, charge that the uh, Democrats were, were soft on uh, communism, that there have been uh, 20 years of uh, treason and, and so on. Um, so the, the uh, Truman administration, uh, um, battered uh, by this sort of thing, uh, began to uh, shift its, its, its policy toward uh, uh, China. It, it had aided the uh, nationalists against the uh, communist-led uh, revolution, um, but um, uh, it, it, it had given, given uh, limited uh, military aid. It certainly hadn't uh, sent in U.S. Uh, troops to do the fighting yeah. for uh, Chiang Kai-shek's forces. Uh, but after the uh, Republican assault, uh, the U.S. Uh, government and the uh, Truman administration uh, began taking a harder line to uh, fend off uh, charges of, of softness on, on uh, communism. And that meant uh, declaring uh, that the U.S. government would rec uh, never recognize the uh, communist regime on the mainland and would uh, c uh, continue to uh, support uh, the nationalist forces led by uh, Chiang Kai-shek, uh, who retreated to the island of uh, Taiwan. Right. Uh, and therefore, uh, U.S. policy stayed uh, frozen uh, for uh, decades after that, uh, with no recognition of the uh, communist government. Uh, and indeed, uh, the United States became in involved in uh, a war with China during the uh, Korean War. Yes. Um, so that um, uh, relations were, were uh, very hostile uh, till the Nixon administration uh, began the, uh, the resumption of uh, diplomatic relations with China. Yeah, it was interesting. I remember in, in the United Nations, China was nationalist China. You couldn't have mm -hmm. red China. Yeah, I mean, you, you couldn't talk about the mainland China without the word red. That's just the way it was. And of course, it wasn't reality. But it's the way uh, some conservative uh, Republicans, largely, and some Democrats, too, uh, had to picture it, that there was this wonderful enemy out there that we couldn't possibly deal with. We could never recognize them. So they'd been enemies until Nixon's 1972 visit to what had been Red China, the People's Republic of China. It was an important strategic and diplomatic change, a new opening that marked the culmination of Nixon's resumption of harmonious relations between the U.S. and mainland China after all those decades of, of isolation and hostility. Now, that all changed dramatically when Trump's Secretary of State, Mike Pompeo, said, the free world must triumph over this new tyranny. New tyranny? He proposed an eerily familiar-sounding alliance of democracies to get tough with China. Now, Trump is thankfully no longer president. But tell us about this turn away from the decades of detente, which had been in place since 1972. What did the new Trump-Pompeo stance look like? Before we get into what Biden's going to do about it. Go ahead. Right, right. Well, uh, beginning in uh, 2018, the uh, Trump administration uh, policy toward, toward China turned uh, sharply hostile. Uh, before that, there, there had been on again, off again uh, spats and, and uh, sometimes uh, love fests with the uh, Chinese leadership. But there began, uh, uh, starting in uh, 2018, a, a serious 
uh, uh, slide toward uh, hostile uh, relations. Um, and that, that, that brought uh, relations between the uh, two countries uh, to their lowest point in the last four decades. The uh, uh, Trump administration, uh, for example, fostered uh, military confrontations with China in the, in the South China Sea, where the uh, Chinese government had um, uh, built up islands there that were uh, contested by other countries in the region as to ownership and uh, control. Um, and uh, U.S. warships uh, began to appear there and to clash, not not in a a, a direct um, violent way, but to um, uh, claim uh, shipping rights and uh, use of the the uh, sea lanes, uh, and 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 clashed with uh, Chinese military vessels and uh, installations on those islands. Um, uh, furthermore. Uh, Trump initiated a, a trade war with with China, this uh, tariff war that that began to uh, create chaos, uh, chaos uh, in terms of uh, the U.S. and uh, Chinese economies. Uh, he he blamed China for the uh, COVID uh, nineteen right. um, pandemic uh, in the the sharpest of terms. Uh, that, of course, was a, a, a political move designed to uh, to get him off the hook in terms of the uh, pandemic spreading in the United States. He could blame China. But nonetheless, this didn't improve U.S.-China uh, relations. And he also uh, sharply denounced the uh, human rights record in uh, China. Uh, and so by uh, July uh, 2020, when uh, a U.S. Secretary of State, Mike uh, Pompeo, uh, call for this new alliance of democracy uh, to resist China. Um, this this uh, process toward um, uh, uh, frosty and uh, perhaps even more dangerous uh, relations with with uh, China was well underway. And this whole idea of an alliance of democracies to get tough with the bad guys, you know, it, it, it's we've seen this kind of thing before. It was there in uh, in uh, Afghanistan. In Iraq, uh, a coalition of the willing, I think George W. Bush called it. Mm -hmm. And uh, as Rocky famously said to Bullwinkle, that trick never works. <laughs> and your article features a photo of then-Vice President Biden laughing with Chinese President Xi Jinping after a banquet in Beijing. That was 10 years ago, 2011. Right. Today, it's, it's not so congenial. Biden and his Secretary of State, Antony Blinken, have, as you say, for the most part, continued this hardline policy. Tell us, please, about Blinken's first meeting with Chinese officials. Well, uh, Blinken is a, a very uh, sophisticated uh, diplomat, and therefore it was uh, striking uh, when uh, rather undiplomatically in his first talks with uh, Chinese officials uh, this March uh, in Alaska, he sharply and uh, publicly assailed uh, China's policies, um, leading to a, a, a very heated response from his uh, Chinese counterpart at that meeting. Uh, Blinken said uh, the Biden administration uh, was united with its allies in uh, pushing back uh, against China's increasing authoritarianism and assertiveness at home and uh, abroad. Um, and uh, uh, Blinken went on to, to say 
that uh, China was uh, violating uh, and uh, threatening the uh, rules-based order that main maintained uh, global uh, stability. Uh, and he pointed to uh, China's action uh, in uh, Xinjiang uh, against the Uyghurs, uh, in, in Hong Kong, and vis-a-vis uh, -vis, uh, Taiwan, uh, and, and, and also pointed to uh, cyber attacks on the United States, uh, and economic uh, coercion that he, he claimed uh, was uh, taking place against U.S. allies. Um, so um, uh, this was a, a very blunt and, and very undiplomatic uh, way of beginning uh, the Biden administration's relations with China. Well, there is uh, political capital to be gained by looking tough. That's been a long mm -hmm. tradition in American foreign policy, results of which debatable as to uh, how uh, productive they have been. And the Chinese government, I mean, it is repressive. They're, they're cracking down severely on the rights of people of Hong Kong. I have a first cousin who lived there for a long time, and he's very, very upset about what's going on in, in Hong Kong. Uh, their democracy is being obliterated. We hear that the Uyghurs in the west of China are restricted to uh, concentration or re-education camps. And in terms of foreign and military policy, the Chinese government, as you say, Chinese government has not shied away from confrontation either. So I guess that's sort of two parts. What can we, I mean, I don't like repression. You know, I don't, I don't like the fact that they pay uh, their workers far less than we pay ours, and they have this tremendous economic advantage from that. And, you know, I, I don't want to support a really repressive government. But what, what can we, the United States, do about that? What's, what's realistic for us? Well, uh, it's not a simple uh, or a, an easily uh, resolved uh, issue. Um, and um, uh, the, the uh, two powers, it, it, it seems to me, uh, without uh, totally uh, resolving the, the, the problems of uh, Chinese authoritarianism or uh, uh, police killings in, in the United States or other, uh, other problems mm -hmm. both societies mm -hmm. have yes. uh, and should be uh, corrected, um, uh, it, it seems to me have to learn uh, to live with one another uh, without accepting uh, those, those violations of uh, human rights, but on the other hand, avoiding uh, a nuclear war and um, uh, avoiding um, uh, taking action on on things that they can take action on uh, together, uh, and uh, some of those things are uh, clearly uh, taking action on on climate change mm -hmm. and on on dealing with the uh, pandemic and with um, um, with a whole raft of other problems that uh, bedevil the world today. So. Uh, again, without um, uh, without dodging uh, human rights abuses, uh, I think both governments have to uh, say, well, um, a, a, a military uh, clash and an economic clash uh, between us uh, is too dangerous. Uh, so we have to avoid those things. And secondly, uh, we um, uh, can uh, cooperate on certain things that are to our uh, mutual interest. 
Now, there is a thought cooperating on things that are to our mutual interest. For those who may have just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. The show is Keeping Democracy Alive. Our guest today is Lawrence Whitner, who's written an article, Will U.S.-China Relations Be Defined by Militaristic Competition or Climate Cooperation? And as you talk, I'm reminded of uh, Al Gore as vice president talking about uh, constructive engagement. With, with China and in NAFTA countries and stuff like that. I'm not sure how how well that worked or if that was just a cover for uh, doing business with them. <laughs> uh, we are, I mean, I don't know how much business we're doing with China, but it seems to me we're, American consumers are buying a heck of a lot of stuff. That's, oh, absolutely. That, that's made in China. And, and what about that? I mean, how, you know, money, as Bob Dylan says, money doesn't talk, it swears, and it has mm -hmm. a lot of power. What about, I, I wonder if there's any kind of leverage that American consumerism can uh, play with, with China. Your thoughts on that? Well, uh, the, the uh, two countries are certainly interlocked um, uh, very heavily economically. Um, uh, we had a, a, a very uh, small taste of what could happen during during uh, Trump's tariff war with with uh, China, which uh, didn't turn out well at all. Um, and it's it's unlikely the uh, two countries are, are going to um, uh, disengage unless there's a, a, a catastrophic uh, event uh, such as a war. Uh, in uh, 2020, uh, China was the largest trading partner uh, with the United States in the world with a trade of uh, $660 billion. Uh, in uh, December uh, 2020, uh, U.S. In investors held $100 billion in uh, Chinese debt oh. and uh, $1.1 trillion in uh, Chinese equities, while uh, Chinese in investors held uh, $1.4 a trillion dollars in U.S. debt and uh, 720 billion dollars in U.S. equities, um, making China the uh, second largest uh, uh, foreign holder uh, of U.S. Treasury uh, securities. So it's it, it's going to be very hard to uh, disentangle uh, the economic uh, relations the United States has with China. It can it can try to uh, um, to uh, utilize. Um, uh, uh, cooperative programs, but I don't think simply uh, threatening China with a, a cutoff of trade or a cutoff investment is going to get very far in, in that they can do the same thing and actually uh, bring down the U.S. economy. Yeah, so it's I find it always fascinating that here we are well into the 21st century and there's still the military focus on, on things that use a lot of oil and are made out of steel and I mean, this is, you know, we, we have so many other more realistic uh, uh, things that can be used, like debts, investments, uh, there's the, uh, you know, the internet, uh, cyber attacks, things like that. And th to focus, to think about using all this money on these weapon systems, it was crazy enough 100 years ago, you know, in the First World War. But now it just seems... I don't know, and they're still talking about it. And that's a huge portion of where your tax dollars and my tax dollars go. And it seems eh, a little bit nuts to me. But as a longtime student of politics and history, it's always entertaining the creative titles members of Congress and presidents 
come up with for their pet legislation? One can think of many different examples of something that sounds so terrific. I mean, what could sound more American apple pie than the new U.S. Innovation and Competition Act? Doesn't that sound swell? I mean, what is it really? Well, uh, it was uh, passed this June uh, by the U.S. Senate by an overwhelming vote, and it's designed to uh, counter China, um, and and very uh, explicitly so, by uh, bolstering America's competitive edge uh, through the investment of uh, $200 billion in uh, uh, scientific and uh, technological innovations. Uh, including artificial intelligence, uh, semiconductors, uh, computer chips, uh, robotics, uh, quantum uh, computing, and uh, biotechnology. Uh, a similar legislation, uh, though with, with less of an anti-Chinese flavor, is now moving forward in the U.S. House of Representatives. Uh, it's one of the few pieces of U.S. legislation that has bipartisan support as it appeals both to the anti-China lobby, which is fairly large, and to uh, to more uh, progressive politicians who are eager to uh, see the U.S. government spend money to encourage basic research in, in the United States. Uh, and here, I can just mention earlier, uh, parallel uh, to that legislation, uh, and that was the, well, after the uh, Russians launched uh, Sputnik into the, the uh, stratosphere, uh, shocking uh, American defense analysts with uh, Soviet uh, rocketry and the, the uh, potential for uh, devastating missiles, um, uh, the U.S. government, very uh, worried about this fact, mm. uh, uh, passed uh, uh, legislation called the National Defense Education Act. And these were uh, low-cost uh, student loans. There'd be no interest at all for uh, American college students uh, to pay on these loans until after they uh, graduated uh, from college, and even then at a very low rate. Mm. So that um, uh, this helped to fund millions of U.S. college students who would, uh, it, it was thought, uh, presumably help the uh, military-industrial complex by, by uh, developing missiles, too, and and helping to uh, to win the the uh, cold war against the uh, soviet union and it actually helped me get through college although i doubt i did much for the military industrial complex <laughs> so uh so um you know one can understand how this is an appealing sort of thing uh, a good investment right mm -hmm. that will uh, help our, our 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 country and to at, at at the same time uh, defeat china in this uh, new new cold war the idea of national security, investing in education. I mean, what could be better for real national right. security? And that was from that, that commie lefty Republican Eisenhower right. as president. He's domestically, I do believe he was just a little bit to the left of Bernie Sanders. And it, <laughs> it worked very, very well. And that period was a tremendous uh, growth in the American economy. We had a middle class and young people. I can't imagine. It's true. We did have a middle class back then. We actually did. And you mentioned the anti-China lobby. What What is that? Who are they these days? And how powerful are they? What does it look like? Well, uh, I think they're largely located in the uh, Republican Party. 
um, and uh, 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 thereby following uh, Trump's lead in, in, in making China the uh, scapegoat for all the world's ills, just as the uh, Soviet Union was once viewed as the, right. the uh, source of all the world's ills, till the Soviet demise, and then other countries became the, the uh, source of all the world's ills. Um, so uh, this is... is um, uh, red meat for the uh, Republican base and for the Republican Party. But there are are some uh, uh, Democrats who are concerned about about China. And indeed, China has has taken a, a more uh, assertive role uh, in world affairs as it's 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 grown economically and militarily uh, in recent decades, uh, which doesn't mean the U.S. government should be uh, fighting a war against China. But it does mean that uh, people are noticing now that that uh, China is the world's um, uh, second uh, military power, uh, second to the United States, and is fast uh, catching up with the United States as the world's uh, first economic power. And therefore, uh, the old game of uh, international competition is uh, sweeping in. And uh, China is the new foe on the world scene to uh, U.S. supremacy. And competition, economic competition, is one thing, but nuclear war is something else entirely. And on foreign policy, it does seem that Democratic presidents generally get a pass from liberals on their defense budgets. They, they, we can talk about the Republican defense budgets, but Democratic presidents generally get sort of a pass. Tell us about what's in the Biden military budget relative to China. What are some of the investments intended to purchase in what they call new warfighting advantages and forces to our forces yeah. here? Well, uh, the Biden military uh, budget is, is uh, very clearly focused on, on China. Um, uh, the the um, uh, Department of Defense uh, statement that uh, went along with the uh, Pentagon budget uh, this year uh, says, quote, China poses the greatest long-term challenge to the United States and uh, strengthening deterrence against China will require the uh, Department of Defense uh, to, to work in concert with other instruments of, of national power. Um, and um, uh, on this basis, the uh, Pentagon requested uh, $715 billion in military expenditures for uh, 2022, with a, a significant uh, chunk of, of these funds to be spent on the uh, uh, procurement of advanced um, uh, warfighting ships, planes, and missiles intended for a, a potential all-out high-intensity war with, mm. with China. An extra $38 billion is being sought for the design and production of nuclear weapons, another key aspect of the drive to overpower China. Overpower China. Boy, you know, I suppose, you know, I think of the South China Sea and the various ships being there and, uh, you know, like, like young boys, you know, I dare you to cross this line or whatever and just... I don't know. It doesn't seem to me the most wise uh, way to do business. <laughs> you mentioned, and, and that's an interesting phrase, that they were preparing for a, a high-intensity all-out war. That's just swell. Uh, you mentioned something <laughs> I'd never heard of, but sounds a lot like a lot of fun for the majors and generals. A hypersonic missile. 
Ooh, that sounds cool. Tell us about that, please. Is it aimed at China? What the heck is a hypersonic missile? And wow, how did they come up with that? Well, a, a, a hypersonic uh, missile is one that that that, that goes um, uh, five times faster than the speed of sound. So wow. you can imagine uh, uh, how how quickly uh, this missile moves, and of course that's of uh, great advantage uh, to those who are who are uh, preparing for war and and planning future wars and and so on. Uh, why not get the the uh, fastest missile uh, available by by far? Uh, now it, it's still in the uh, development stage uh, by the U.S. government, but it's already uh, attracted billions of dollars in 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 uh, funding uh, from the U.S. government. Um, it it it's not just uh, five times faster than the uh, speed of sound, but it has greater uh, maneuverability than other uh, nuclear armed missiles, uh, and it it can strike the uh, Chinese mainland. So uh, for this high intensity war. Uh, this this high high tech war, uh, the the uh, hypersonic missile uh, is just the thing that uh, Pentagon planners want. And I should note, in in fairness, that the uh, Chinese are also working on uh, hypersonic missiles. Uh, there's a, a nuclear arms race on, on now, and unfortunately, the uh, nuclear arms control. Uh, and disarmament process of, of the past has been uh, stagnating for the last 10 years. And instead, all the nuclear powers are engaged in a, a nuclear arms race, uh, a buildup, not necessarily uh, increasing their number of new uh, nuclear weapons or of nuclear weapons, but um, uh, redesigning them so they can move faster, they have greater uh, maneuverability, uh, they can hit their, their, their targets more accurately uh, and uh, strike terror into the heart, uh, hearts of their foes. Wow, that trick never works, though. I mean, with how many times have we seen, and I'm kind of a World War I nut, and you know, you look at the, the weapons that, that all the sides developed, saying, oh, this will be so intense that the other side will give up. They can't possibly compete with this weapon. <laughs> it just, it's complete foolishness. It never works. Uh, if you just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. The show is Keeping Democracy Alive. We're talking about... China and a possible war with China, and maybe there's another way to do it. Our guest is Lawrence Whitner, who's got a new article, Will U.S.-China Relations Be Defined by military, Militaristic Competition or Climate Cooperation? So we mentioned a couple times the South China Sea. Mm -hmm. what, what, what is going on there? Should we, how concerned should we be about something minor setting off something major? Right, right. Well, um, uh, uh, China has um, uh, taken the opportunity of its its uh, growing economic and military power uh, and its growing assertiveness in the, in, in the world to um, uh, take control of some uh, disputed islands in this this vast south South China Sea. Um, now, uh, some of these islands are just uh, bits of rock. And what the Chinese did was to pour uh, vast amounts of uh, concrete there and uh, create uh, a largely artificial island on top of the old uh, spur of rock there. Uh, but they've then uh, installed military facilities there. Uh, uh, 
air airfields and uh, loading docks and, and and so on that that make these useful uh, military outposts to to uh, China off the Chinese mainland. Uh, other countries also uh, claim these these islands. Uh, Vietnam does. Um, so th this is not just a, a, a capitalist West versus communist China, but here are, are two communist nations that are uh, feuding about what's going on in the uh, uh, South China Sea, which the uh, Vietnamese call the East Sea, by the way, they don't even uh, accept China's name on it. Uh, uh -huh. The, um, the uh, Philippines claim uh, islands there, the um, uh, Malaya does as well. Um, and uh, a number of other countries have have claims there. Um, so, uh, with the uh, Chinese action, this uh, dispute was was uh, brought to the International uh, Court of Arbitration at the Hague, oh. and 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 the court ruled that uh, China did not have uh, exclusive rights there, and it limited China. But but China has refused to. Uh, accept the the uh, court's decision and and claims that it can work things out with the other nations. Well, it, it hasn't done done so so far. Um, and meanwhile, uh, the U.S. government has begun to to send uh, warships through and to uh, challenge uh, Chinese control. And uh, Chinese military vessels move out from the islands and they uh, escort the U.S. vessels out of what they claim are their waters. Uh, around the islands and and so on. So um, uh, one of these um, uh, uh, bumping up against uh, one another uh, scenarios there in the the uh, South China Sea might at at some point lead to uh, a U.S. warship uh, shooting back at the uh, Chinese warship or, or vice versa, um, and this may escalate into a a, a serious military clash. Um, uh, uh, China, which, which says these are its islands, um, you know, might, might actually uh, destroy uh, some U.S. warships there, um, uh, through missiles. Uh, the United States in, in, in return, uh, through its aircraft carriers that has, it has uh, begun to uh, deploy there, um, aircraft carriers, um, uh, hosting warplanes with, with, uh, missile, uh, missiles mm -hmm. on, on board. Um, may may fire on the uh, Chinese mainland where the uh, Chinese missiles are are located. Missile silos are are uh, located, and uh, this this um, uh, small scale clash might might develop into a, a conventional war. And uh, if, if if China is getting battered uh, by U U.S. aircraft carriers, maybe it, it will launch a nuclear missile. Uh, to wipe out the U.S. aircraft carrier, whereupon the U.S. government launches its nuclear missiles uh, against China, and we're on to a nuclear war, uh, a war in which uh, China has hundreds of uh, of nuclear weapons, and the United States has about uh, 6,000. So it's a dangerous situation in which a, a small incident uh, could lead to a, a, uh, a global holocaust. And I, I'm a little bit surprised. I mean, there's been so much news in the past uh, oh, 20 years or so. Kuna forgot about the nuclear arms race. It has not been in the headlines. We sort of thought, ah, we're finished with that. That's old news. 
Uh, but apparently it's not. And I'm reminded of various provocations at sea, something called uh, Kimoi and Matsu. They were, yes. what, what were they again? I know it, it, it sounds familiar to me, something to do with provocations between China and the U.S., I think, or maybe, I don't know. What was that? Oh, oh yes, uh, you're right. Uh, what happened was in the 1950s, um, as, as uh, Chiang Kai-shek's uh, nationalist forces uh, took control of uh, Taiwan, where, by the way, the uh, Taiwanese didn't welcome them. They, there's a lot of Taiwanese nationalism. But, uh, you know, Chong simply claimed claimed uh, Taiwan, moved his forces in there and, and so on. Mao also claimed uh, Taiwan, of course, uh, as part of China. And at certain points, it, it, it had been. Oh, and, and it seemed that there was no reason Mao wouldn't simply continue his uh, military drive against Chiang Kai-shek. That is, he had, he had driven Chiang off the mainland, and the next step was to invade uh, Taiwan. And um, there were certain offshore islands that were uh, stepping stones, it, it seemed, to to uh, Taiwan. And uh, two of these these barren rocks were uh, Kimoi and Matsu. Uh, and the uh, Chinese nationalist government immediately uh, began fortifying them. And uh, Mao on, on the mainland immediately began uh, bombarding them with uh, long-range artillery. So here was this clash, this, this military clash between Chang's forces and, and Mao's forces during the 1950s. And it, and it seemed that any, any day now, uh, uh, Mao's uh, uh, forces are successful on, on the mainland would uh, simply invade uh, Kimoi and Matsu uh, for what that was worth. Uh, so um, uh, the U.S. government uh, immediately got into the act, and Eisenhower uh, went to Congress, and there were all sorts of uh, resolutions about uh, defending uh, Chiang Kai-shek and uh, defending Kimoi and, and Matsu, and even talk of using nuclear weapons to defend them. Um, since it, it had been an article of, of faith uh, for many years on, on the part of the U.S. military that it couldn't win a war on the Asian mainland or against China. And therefore, uh, the only way it could do it was through uh, nuclear war. So, of course, the, the, the clash over Kimoi and, and Matsu uh, had to in, involve the U.S. government uh, rolling out nuclear weapons. Well, in fact, the uh, Chinese communists um, uh, backed off for the time being, and they, they stopped the uh, bombardment of uh, Kimoi and Matsu. Uh, but it, it was a, a very tense moment in uh, U.S.-Chinese relations, uh, and it looked like there was uh, going to be a war. Boy, I sure, I, I, I wouldn't want to die over islands I barely heard of. Uh, right. <laughs> but, uh, and, you know, the, the 45th president ratcheted up racist mm -hmm. attacks on Asian Americans. As, as you mentioned earlier, we, he called it the China virus. Of course, mm -hmm. you know, he was asleep at the switch at best. But behind that truly deadly bluster, has there been meaningful cooperation between the two superpowers on, on the pandemic? And what kind of bilateral cooperative effort might be realistic in safeguarding global health? Hmm. This is something we could possibly really, I mean, the two big powers, you know, we have both of us between us, you know, a lot of money and a lot of uh, expertise. So w w what kind of cooperative effort might be realistic? 
Well, uh, the the uh, tragedy there was a a, a, a real uh, tragedy in the uh, Trump administration's uh, scapegoating of, of China for the uh, coronavirus and uh, pulling out of the World Health Organization uh, at just the time that the world's nations needed a, a global response to the uh, disease pandemic. Mm. Um, since that time, under the Biden administration, uh, the U.S. government has rejoined uh, the World Health Organization and has ramped up antivirus efforts, uh, working with uh, China and other nations uh, in this connection. But it's not nearly enough. Um, you, you know, uh, the U.S. government has uh, uh, been been holding on to the uh, vaccine that, that it has uh, for the most part and for the patents on the vaccine. Um, mm. And this has restricted other nations, uh, particularly poor nations, uh, from getting the uh, vaccine. Uh, the the uh, Chinese have been uh, cooperating more more fully uh, with World Health Organization in, in its uh, COVAX program in uh, distributing the the uh, vaccine to to uh, poor nations. But uh, working together, uh, the the uh, two two giant economic powers could be. Uh, distributing vast amounts of 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 a uh, anti disease vaccine uh, to the world's nations, uh, especially the uh, poorer nations, and they could use their their uh, technical and and scientific expertise uh, uh, to make uh, significant breakthroughs on uh, controlling disease pandemics generally. Not to be too cynical, but you know, cutting down on on viruses, sharing uh, surplus vaccinations we have because so many people aren't even taking the vaccine, and and mm-hmm. you know, in India and, and so many places across the world, people are dying of it. That's not nearly as profitable as weapon <laughs> systems. So you know, it, it sounds it's altruistic, but you know, how could <laughs> I, I, I don't know how realistic it would be to uh, to change policy and to to look at that and to, to define uh, you know international security that way. Your thoughts? Well, I think international uh, security is more than uh, counting nuclear missiles. Uh, <laughs> and uh, uh, and uh, and uh, uh, right now, uh, international security, including uh, U.S. security. Uh, is really bound up in in, in dealing with the uh, disease pandemic, uh, in dealing with uh, the the uh, climate uh, crisis, uh, in dealing uh, with the nuclear arms race, in dealing with uh, uh, global uh, poverty and the vast economic and 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 social inequities on the world scene, and um, uh, uh, not just for uh, humanitarian reasons, but also just for uh, rational reasons, for for uh, security reasons, um, uh, we should be uh, concerned about dealing with these uh, security questions. And I think uh, cooperation uh, would en- enable these uh, uh, two mightiest uh, military and economic powers uh, to make uh, tremendous strides forward in terms of of uh, addressing uh, the real uh, international security uh, crises of our time. Yeah, it's true. Dead people don't consume a lot of goods. You know, right. <laughs> it's, it's better for business. And the Trumpist right has falsely, of course, for a long time, insisted 
Biden is a tool of the Chinese, <laughs> and a lot of people have bought into that stuff. Political realities, therefore, necessitate him looking tough on China. How, how is Biden maneuvering these treacherous political waters? This is hardly the first time Republicans have used China against Democratic presidents, as we know. So how does, how does this affect uh, uh, Biden's policy? Because he's got to, you know, look tough, I guess. Mm-hmm. What, what do you see? How's that affect well, okay. yeah, uh, well, yeah, uh, well, the the uh, Truman administration, of course, under this uh, barrage of, of being soft on on communism, uh, hardened its its uh, China policy uh, to non recognition uh, and and uh, support of Chiang Kai Shek um, and and uh, Lyndon Johnson too uh, under you know well uh, fearful of a uh, communist victory. In Vietnam, uh, right. being used against him uh, politically, yes. um, uh, decided that he he had to be tough. He couldn't lose Indochina, as the Democrats have, had lost China mm. and had 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 paid a, a political price for that. So uh, while uh, Joe Biden hasn't hasn't told me confidentially uh, what's going on in, in his mind, uh, I wouldn't be surprised if um, uh, one reason for his hard line against China. Uh, is that he, he, he fears a, a popular backlash if he, he seemed too uh, sympathetic to, to China. Uh, on the other hand, there have been, uh, hints and, and even statements that, uh, he would, he would welcome greater uh, cooperation with, with China. Mm. Uh, Anthony Blinken, for example, uh, a U.S. Secretary of State uh, chosen by, by Biden, um, has ha, has stated that he he sees possibilities for uh, cooperation with China when it it, it comes to uh, climate change um, and other uh, unnamed issues. So, um, oh, and 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 of course the uh, Chinese did uh, show up for uh, uh, Biden's uh, climate uh, uh, summit ah. and uh, seemingly got on fine with the United States there. So I think the door is open in the Biden administration for uh, cooperation. But on the other hand, uh, he's he's determined to uh, play uh, Mr. Tough Guy. Mm-hmm. Um, and he may uh, believe that to some degree, too. Uh, I don't think he's he's totally sympathetic to to, to China, no. uh, as the right wing claims. But I think he's um, uh, he's also suspicious of their intentions, as are many other uh, political leaders around the world. But nonetheless, those uh, suspicions could be dealt with by um, uh, drawing back from the military uh, confrontation and actually um, uh, working with China to, to solve their, their common problems. And we certainly do have common problems, not the least of which is climate change. It's probably the greatest threat to the future of the planet. And we're already right. seeing major disruptive effects. I didn't think we'd see stuff like this for 20, 30 years or so, but wow, it's hitting. The the two countries, the U.S. and China, what is their role in greenhouse gas emissions? And talk, talk about what the two are doing and what might be possible relative to climate change and, and addressing it mediating. Well, uh, the United States and, and China are the world's biggest uh, emitters of greenhouse gases. Uh, and therefore, any international agreement, any global ag- agreement on uh, saving the world from uh, climate catastrophe will uh, uh, sink or swim 
based on their willingness uh, to work together to deal with this problem. Um, they can make or, or break uh, uh, world climate agreements. Uh, now, at, at, at the moment, uh, the Biden administration's plans are uh, somewhat for, for dealing with the uh, climate crisis are uh, somewhat uh, more ambitious than, than, than China's, although China does have plans. Um, uh, but uh, China is, is uh, to, to uh, some degree, uh, still thinking in the old way, uh, thanks to its uh, willingness to, to build more uh, coal-fired plants, uh, coal-fired uh, power plants. And therefore, um, there's still some um, mild friction uh, between uh, the U.S. and, and uh, Chinese policies. But, but both are definitely moving ahead with uh, programs to, to, to curb uh, climate change. Whether they'll be uh, sufficient is the real uh, question. Uh, probably not at the current levels. But it, it's possible that, that, that given uh, the recent uh, catastrophes we can see unfolding in the United States and around the world, uh, they'll become more ambitious and they'll actually uh, meet the challenge. And believe it or not, the voice of the people does make a difference. A lot of times, I mean, people have been convinced over many years that there's nothing we can do to make change, but it we can hear. And as we mentioned earlier, Pompeo called for an alliance of democracies to fight China. But democracy means the ability of citizens to meaningfully affect government policy. Beijing is crushing democracy in Hong Kong. Uh, the Republicans want to crush democracy here in the United States. It's shaky in both places. Do you see any chance? What, what do you see with regard to chance of the voice of the people in China and America having any avenue to actually affect policy change? What The two countries. Well, obviously, it's 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 easier um, when uh, people vote to affect public policy. Uh, nonetheless, uh, popular uh, sentiments and uh, pu uh, public uh, protest um, uh, uh, can can change things. Oh, yeah. um, there have been uh, uh, demonstrations of the past in in uh, dictatorial uh, societies and democratic societies. Um, often an alliance uh, develops among the uh, protesters in different countries. Um, this was certainly true during the nuclear disarmament campaign of the 1980s, which I studied. A and it's uh, true today around the issues of uh, climate change, uh, corporate uh, malfeasance, uh, women's rights, uh, labor rights, and, and so on. So there are international movements that uh, do affect the, the uh, public in all countries, whether or not they vote. Uh, furthermore, uh, the governments of China and the United States uh, want to keep uh, public opinion on their side, mm -hmm. not only in, in their own countries, uh, but around the world. They, they uh, try to influence people through uh, propaganda and to, to uh, influence and uh, change public opinion. So uh, they they in, in turn uh, can be uh, pushed around by uh, popular uh, pressure, and they have been in the the past uh, in terms of nuclear arms race and in terms of, of uh, climate change and a whole range of other things. 
Yeah, it can happen. I mean, we had the uh, nuclear freeze uh, protests back in 1982. Eh, it, it, it raised the issue for a while, and people in uh, Hong Kong are protesting out in the streets, but it doesn't seem to, to matter uh, to Beijing. But they are... I think starting to, I mean, Hong Kong, the people of Hong Kong, they have friends around the world. Uh, people are starting to pay attention to the Uyghurs. I, I would think in both the U.S. and it comes to uh, police repression and police murders uh, that we, the, the people here, can make a difference, hearing from us. And the same thing, I mean, we can't just go in and tell Beijing what to do. Same way we can't do with Havana either. Uh, it's mm -hmm. it's got to come from the people themselves. And there are, it's not easy but it possibly can be done. For those who may have just tuned in, Bert Cohen here, the show is Keeping Democracy Alive. Our guest today is Lawrence Whitner, who's written an article, Will U.S.-China Relations Be Defined by Militaristic Competition or Climate Cooperation? We can do it. And so, yeah, it would be nice to adjust the war footing policy and, and try to avoid military provocations in places like the South China Sea. You say other areas are also ripe for cooperation, not just adjusting war footing. What are some of these other areas that are ripe for cooperation? Uh, well, for example, economic agreements could uh, reduce global poverty, outlaw multinational uh, corporate uh, malfeasance, uh, and regulate trade, uh, while uh, crime-fighting measures could address cyber attacks and, and uh, poverty. Even in the uh, arena of uh, human rights, uh, there's room for uh, cooperation uh, for uh, just as the uh, Chinese government has violated international standards through uh, harsh domestic repression. Uh, the U.S. government has much to answer for when it comes to uh, systemic racism yes. and uh, police violence. Uh, if both nations were willing to end their uh, finger pointing uh, <laughs> one another and, and, and actually curb these uh, abuses, uh, they could join in accepting and uh, championing uh, global enforcement of the UN's uh, Universal Declaration of Human Rights. Hmm. A wonderful, wonderful piece of work that is the Declaration of Human Rights. And, uh, they, they, you know, they, they keep trying the same thing over and over again. And trying this, you know, actually implementing the uh, Declaration of Human Rights from, I think it was 1948, uh, people might like it in both countries. Yes. <laughs> it might actually serve them well. And as you say, cooperation between the two nations is not as far-fetched as it might seem. So have have the two governments been working together on common interests in certain and in, in some ways yet? Or? Yeah. Okay. In in uh, past decades, uh, the U.S. and uh, Chinese governments did work uh, together on on projects like uh, stopping Ebola, uh, reducing the uh, production and consumption of uh, hydrofluorocarbons, ah. uh, averting um, global uh, financial uh, catastrophe, and assuring uh, food safety. So uh, there's nothing stopping them from working together. And again, they, they would uh, benefit uh, significantly from that. We both would. So I wonder, you know, and, and one sees a very different China now than when Mao was in uh, power. And it seems like Xi Jinping is going to be in power for quite a while. And he's very mm -hmm. powerful. And the, the whole, you know, Maoist uh, communism 
that seems you know like it's left far behind. It's highly capitalistic right now. Many Chinese citizens in the 21st century are getting quite wealthy indeed. And competition is inherent in actual capitalism as opposed to you know, states supporting certain areas and, you know, the, the power that uh, that certain interests have within each government, the status of which is questionable in both countries, real competition. What stands in the way of mere economic competition and not war? And what can we do about it? We the people. Well, um, you know, it, it, it's strange, but uh, corporations used to uh, trumpet the uh, slogan, uh, world peace through world trade. But it, is that really true? Uh, economic competition uh, for raw materials, markets, and 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 profits uh, has certainly led at at times to war, uh, and the whole military-industrial complex uh, is one more illustration of how uh, corporate profits can uh, play a role in in instigating um, uh, international um, uh, military buildups and, and and war. And there's also um, the the force uh, of nationalism, though, oh, that yes. is beyond just economics, uh, it, it seems to me, a key factor behind warfare and uh, preparations for war is this uh, puffed up notion uh, of people in different nations, especially in the big, powerful nations, uh, that they should rule uh, supreme, yes. that they're uh, superior to people in other lands, yes. Yes. that uh, we're the best uh, best country in, 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 the, in the entire history of the world. Right, right. Uh, and um, uh, obviously, uh, that's going to lead to war at, at, at some point with other countries that may uh, view themselves as the best country and, and so on and so on. So and, and we're uh, used to that sort of rhetoric in, in the United States and, and increasingly uh, that's rhetoric in, in China. And it has been in other nations that have been uh, great powers in, in the past. Um, so uh, to reduce the uh, likelihood of, of war, it seems to me we have to uh, strengthen uh, global governance. Uh, we have to um, uh, downplay nationalism and uh, strengthen the ability uh, to restrain nationalism. And that's going to mean uh, um, a, a, a stronger uh, United Nations, for example, uh, with, with uh, greater power uh, to uh, set the rules for nations and to curb their uh, propensity for war. Nationalism. Ugh. It's uh, World War One was all about nationalism, and we see how uh, far that got us. Well, it's been a fascinating and very educational uh, discussion. If people want to read uh, more from you, Lawrence Whitner, is there something on the uh, internet that you can point people to? Just look up your name, or what? Um, they can look up uh, my name. Uh, the article uh, you mentioned, though, uh, is one that will uh, uh, summarize some of these things. Um, uh, furthermore, they, they might like to read my history of the world nuclear disarmament movement uh, called uh, Confronting the Bomb, in, in that it uh, talks about how uh, popular pressure helped to build an international movement that uh, curbed the uh, militaristic excesses, especially nuclear war, of the uh, major powers of the time. So it's a, a heartening story uh, for the future. We can do it. We really can. Thank you so much for being with us today, Lawrence Whitner. Thank you. And, okay, uh, thank you.
Three. 